0: your listeners, this
1: episode contains content that may be alarming to some of you. We discuss sexual assault and harassment, which are persistent forms of gender-based violence rooted in gender inequality. Please check the show notes for specific content time
0: codes. You'll also find a list of resources should you need them. And most
1: importantly, please take care of yourself while listening.
0: Welcome to Dig This, a podcast about using archaeology, heritage, and business to do some
1: good in this world. I'm Jenny. And I'm Amanda. Join us and a guest or two as we reevaluate and decolonize our work, our relationships, and our values. We're recording from the unceded territory of the Shimshan Nation, the Kitsilis people in Terrace, B.C., and also recording from Bowser, BC,
0: in the beautiful unceded territory of the Qualicum First Nation. Hey, Amanda. Hey, Jenny. How are you doing today? Um, still the same. I'm still recovering from episode twenty, season one of Lost. Ooh,
1: I haven't gotten um, deep into the Lost series yet, but it's on my list of things to do. What are you watching? I mean, I mean, I know we're not,
0: you know, we're coming out of COVID, but it's been serious TV watching.
1: Yeah. I've really gone down this dark rabbit hole of watching like true crime series. And right now I'm watching one on Netflix called The Staircase. (gasps) Yeah. I think it was The Owl. Don't, don't give it away. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really famous true
0: crime story and I love true crime. So I'm just putting that out there. How's the backyard? I don't even want to talk about the replacement of my septic field. (laughs) That is taking forever. (laughs) But I left the house this morning and there were two backhoes busy. So I'm going to say that's a measure of success.
1: Shouldn't you be there monitoring for archaeological sites?
0: Nope. Oh, yeah. No, I am the official monitor, but Tony has his chance find management plan. So he's happy as can be.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, my fingers and toes are crossed for you that nothing's found. I'm really excited for this podcast today.
0: Yeah. So do you remember a few months ago, our friend Margarita de Guzman from Circle organized a panel roundtable session for the Canadian Archaeological Association annual general meeting, and it was with Women in Archaeology. Do you remember that?
1: I remember that you were going to be on the panel. You were super excited about it, and I wanted to come, and I wasn't able to, to watch it, so I missed it.
0: I know and but. I've never I've never forgiven you for that but here we are we decided to recreate it But one of the really excellent things that came out of this was myself and the other participants kept this conversation going in email. And we were all in agreement that, you know, there was, we were just scratching the surface of what Mm -hmm. we had gotten to. And there was such compelling questions coming. um, At least what resonated with me were the questions coming from the early career female archaeologists. And they were asking questions like, how did you manage this? How did you manage that? And we really, really wanted to continue that conversation. And then We found ourselves in an opportunity to be able to do it. So that's what we're continuing today is that um, roundtable. So today we have a number of folks joining us. Not everyone could join us from the original roundtable, but we do have Margarita de Guzman from Circle CRM. She is here, a friend of the family of the podcast. So she's been on the floor. We also have Keisha Supernant. And we have Lisa Rankin and Amelia Fay. So we'll let folks introduce themselves a bit more, but welcome everybody to the Dig This podcast. Welcome. Thank you.
2: Thanks. 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 Hi.
0: So, what's everyone been up to since the original panel? <laughs> it's just been really dormant, really quiet in archaeology, nothing going on, right? Yeah.
3: How much time do you have? <laughs>
0: I don't know how do you want to go into that Keisha. I know you've been exceptionally busy. You can choose whether you want to talk about that or not but
3: I, I might very just briefly um you know so this is of course coming together after the news broke about the discovery of possible unmarked locations of children from the Kamloops Indian residential school and that has been basically my life since that announcement. So um, mm-hmm. over 50 media interviews. I'm chair of a working group for the CAA about all this, the Canadian Archaeological Association. So it's been a bit of an intense time. Do you
0: have any insights or tips for like how, like how are you taking care of yourself?
3: Well, I've been really trying to still have boundaries around my work time. So typically I really try hard not to work after about five o'clock and i try not to work on weekends. And I I keep to that probably about 80% of the time normally. There are some times when it inevitably spills over. And that's been harder, but I've still been trying to step away. Uh, I did take an afternoon off during the week where it was really intense and did some things that really bring me joy. And, you know, I find very grounding. Like I went down for a walk in their beautiful river valley here in Edmonton. And then I did a little bit of retail therapy, which is always fun.
1: I haven't done retail therapy in so long. It's all online. It's no, that's not just a, That's what we call trauma shopping, right? <laughs> that's a thing. It is a thing.
0: Yeah, that's totally a thing. Well, I, yeah, thank you for telling us that. I'm, I mean, I know we're trying to keep it light, but uh, I mean, it is a, a serious situation and thanks for doing all the work that you do on it.
3: <laughs> thanks, Jenny. So I'm coming to you today from Amiskutira Sky Gun, um or Edmonton, Alberta, and from the lands of the Treaty 6 Nation in a place that has long been a gathering place for diverse Indigenous nations and also the homeland of the Metis Nation. Tanze, Kisha Supernant and Sikatson, Yeah, I'm Dr. Kisha Supernant. I am director of the Institute of Prairie and Indigenous Archaeology at the University of Alberta. I'm Metis um, and have a lot of family connections here in Alberta. And I'm really happy to be here with all these other amazing women. And uh, I've known Jenny. I've known you for a long time. A I've known long you.
0: time. <laughs> Jenny, yeah.
3: with my doctoral field work,
1: So really happy to be here with everyone.
0: Awesome. It's so great to have you here, Keisha. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Keisha. And Keisha and I have known each other quite a while too. I, I can't really recall how long ago that was, but I met you when you were doing some research out on the the dentist area.
3: Mm-hmm. That would have been two thousand six, two thousand seven, probably is when we met.
1: <laughs> Sounds about
2: right. And uh, we've got Amelia. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. I'm I'm Amelia Fay, and I'm I'm joining you guys from Winnipeg, Manitoba today. Well, I'm joining you you guys from Treaty One uh, Territory, the ancestral lands of the Anishinaabeg and Aninawak. and these lands are the unceded uh, territories of the Dakota and the homeland of the Métis Nation here in Winnipeg. It's nice and steamy here. Summer's hit us early, which Mm. I guess is good. Yeah, and I'm the curator of the Hudson's Bay Company Museum Collection at the Manitoba Museum. Um, And I've been in that job for eight years now. But prior to that, I was a graduate student, like many of us here, um, out at Memorial University in Newfoundland. And actually, my amazing PhD supervisor is with us today too, Lisa Rankin, so it's kind of uh, nice to have one of my mentors talking about all these awesome topics about being a woman in archaeology. Anissa Rankin?
4: I'm a Professor and Research Chair of Archaeology at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador on the traditional territories of the Beothic and Mi'kmaq. But I'm coming to you today from Nain Nunatsiavut, the traditional territories of the Labrador Inuit, and they're now self-governed territory. And I'm attending a week-long heritage forum in and I'm sitting at the back of their cultural center looking out over beautiful main bay through a beautiful little window at the back of the center.
5: Ah, uh, it sounds so nice. Hi guys, uh, I'm Margarita. I am coming to you from Calgary in Treaty 7 territory on the traditional territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy, which includes the Siksika, mm-hmm. Kainai, and Pikani, as well as the Sutina, Nakoda, and Métis Nation, region three. And I am the managing director and owner of Circle CRM Group. Uh, we are consulting archaeologists with a base in Calgary and Edmonton and an uh, office in William Lake.
0: So the last time that we all got together was for the CAA's session, which I introduced at the top there. And I talked a little bit about what kind of had resonated with me. Um, and so I wonder before we get into asking all of you about, you know, why archaeology, I wondered if we could back away from that and kind of reconnect to that original panel of the CAAs. Did you guys have any like reflections or any kind of takeaways afterwards that came up or anything that
5: resonated at all from that? I just want to say that I was just so proud of this panel because I had originally planned this panel when the CAAs were supposed to be in Edmonton. So I already had Jenny and Keisha on board, but when it became a virtual conference we we wanted representation from across the country so Lisa Hodgetts um, put me in touch with Amelia and Lisa and Holly Martell who can't be here and I I know that I gave you guys all questions but I was just so amazed at how well prepared you guys were the answers were so great you had backup answers and everyone I know who was present was just so like so happy that they were present so I just want to thank you again
3: for me continued emphasis of the need for this conversation so I think there's a tendency sometimes when an issue especially an equity sort of issue comes to the fore whether it be about gender whether it be about visible minority whether it be about queer issues I think it's a tendency to be like okay we we talked about this and now we're We're going to go on and and keep on keeping on. And this reminded me of the need for a sustained conversation, right? That, you know, our junior colleagues, folks who are coming through now are facing some of the same challenges that we did. And well... The discipline and society at large has moved forward in some important ways. There's still so much work to do and the kind of conversations that we were having, the shared experiences, and then the responses and engagement from the audience just kind of reinforced to me the importance of this conversation and how it still really needs to happen. And so great to be here to continue that conversation. Thanks, Keisha. Like that is so incredible that we're still talking about this because part of me
0: is like, why are we still talking about this? But then as soon as we do a panel or, you know, have the opportunity to perhaps see ourselves through other folks' eyes, you know, who are maybe us 10 years ago or 20 years ago, which we forget, or at least I forget, um, it kind of regrounds me again that, yeah, like, why aren't we talking about this more? It's, it's clearly a conversation that's not done. Did anybody else have any kind of thing that they were reflecting upon
4: after or anything that just kind of stuck with you? A couple of the uh, older women had comments as we were closing up our CAA session. And they were saying that there had been some really great breakthroughs since their time. And now I'm 56. I've been doing this for a long time and things have changed. But I think that there are Still, some of the old issues going on, but I think there are a lot of new issues because there's so many more women in archaeology today.
1: Yeah, it's so wonderful to see so many women and uh, female archaeology colleagues. Yeah, it was lonely before. I felt like <laughs> um, it's not that it's not that women weren't out there; um, they were. We were all out there working away. But but now there's more women who are in leadership roles as well and company owners. It just seems to be
2: broadening. Well, for one, I really appreciated, Margarita, you having those great questions for us to, to go off of. I think that um, the work you put in in the front end really helped make that panel successful. So kudos to you too for that. Um, but also for me, I think it was just um, a lot of the shared experiences. Like there was so many times where my head was nodding so vigorously. I thought it might fall mm-hmm. off just from what everybody else was saying. Like sometimes you think you're alone in some of these experiences and then having a forum like this Really makes you realize that what you've experienced is not necessarily unique, although there are sometimes unique circumstances, but that in fact we share a lot of, of these experiences and it's it was so refreshing to kind of have that commonality and that awareness that that you're not alone in all of it and that we can kind of work together on it.
0: I found that I came away also thinking that I kind of had to check my privilege a bit because I was thinking while we were there, you know, I was talking about Cleanza, my and Amanda's business and how we would bring the kids into the field and, and things like this. And I think someone had then pointed out later, of course, like, you know, well, you're a company owner, like you can do that. But, you know, that's not an opportunity for many other people. And, and I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, totally. Like, I, t- it's interesting how you can kind of like even though I, I, I operate in a sphere where, where part of my job is to be self-reflexive and criticize, you know, the, the setting I'm working within. And I was like, shoot, like I'm doing that same thing. And I need to be totally aware of that as well. And I know we talked about like jamming the door open uh, for other women as well, but like recognizing the privilege that I get to jam the door open in the first place. It's so easy to forget that like in these positions I find too. It was good. It was good to be like called out a bit too. Like no one was doing that deliberately. It was super supportive, super uplifting, but I guess the takeaway was I just learned a lot kind of coming out of that session. So, so I missed it.
1: What, what did you guys talk about?
5: I I remember the first question was, um, I asked you all for like, uh, in one word, what does it feel like to be around archaeology? And that was where you guys had the backup answers, and I was like, "Wow, these are so good! I'm glad I'm not on this panel."
4: Just
0: <laughs> right, and I think it was words like transformative. I feel like there was kinship came up. Anyone else remember?
3: I like how we can't remember. <laughs> I know it wasn't that long ago. I you know I talked about community. I think community. Those yeah, that I was talked one. about. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I think we dug deep into anthropological theory a bit. Oh, code switching. We talked about code switching as
5: well. I don't want to speak on behalf of Holly because she can't be here, but I remember her saying because her partner was a man, how she got sort of pigeonholed into doing certain roles. And I thought that was interesting because she didn't have to do certain roles that should just be for the women. Like, you know, you don't make the tea and get the breakfast or whatever it is. (laughs) (laughs)
3: I think for me, one of the real highlights, I mean, Jenny, this comes back to you sort of this idea of holding the door open, but we had a really good conversation. It's not just about holding open the door, but changing the actual configuration of the space.
0: Getting rid of the door. Getting rid of
3: the door, creating it, you know, getting rid of the table and sitting in a circle. and, And this idea that, and this is where I think there can sometimes be that generational disconnect. It's like, just because progress has been made doesn't mean that we've achieved I mean, equity is never really something you achieve, right? It's something, it's an ongoing process. It's always changing. It's always growing. And so beyond just this idea of creating more space for women, it's like, what does that then do to the spaces we're in? And and Holly's stories is a good example of this as well. It's like in the code switching, I want want an environment where I don't have to code switch, right? right? Right. where I can just be who I am in the wholeness of what that is and not feel I have to fit into someone's particular way of understanding just so that I can do my work while still making space that we're all different and we'll bring different things to the table.
0: Another way that we talk about is like wearing different hats, which was always seen as as being you know a real professional adeptitude, right? Like you can you can wear these different hats, and and then when we're talking about code switching for folks who you know aren't rooted deeply in anthropological theory, it's the idea of being able to act and speak and present in a different manner by choice, depending on the context you find yourself in, and you can choose to be in that context. So it might be if I. I'm going into a corporate boardroom. I will choose to speak and dress a different way, perhaps. Or you might find yourself in that situation, not by choice. And that might be, there's a great TED talk, TEDx talk by Jamila Scott, where she talks about code switching as a black woman and how she can like talk high and talk low. And depending on, you know, who she's with, if she's at home or if she's at her place of work or if she's with colleagues who are not people of color and so on. And so that's kind of what code switching is. And it's interesting because as professionals, yeah, there's that idea of switching hats and it's a strength. But I love the idea of not feeling that we have to do that. Like, is that something that perhaps men in archaeology, they feel they don't have to do it? Or maybe the idea of wearing different hats is a very male perspective as opposed to, you know, being forced
1: into code switching as a woman. That's the first time I've heard that term, code switching. So I'm glad you were able to spell it out a little bit for me there could it be like similar to like wearing different pants changing your pants
0: (laughs) welcome to the podcast where we mix and butcher metaphors everyone (laughs) (laughs) yeah but I don't know if anyone can build upon what Keisha was saying
5: um I just wanted to really stress that because that was one of the key takeaways I had because we often talk about kicking open the door for other women to come after us and I really loved um, how Keisha talked about just redesigning the space, screw the door, just redesign the space. But I think another thing that came out of that was that I'm not sure if it is women in general, but I find that women in general do it more often is that we take on a lot more, um, especially women in senior positions, business owners and in leadership positions where you just take on a lot more. You You'll say, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. Until the point where, you know, you almost can't do it anymore.
1: Which really became evident, um, at least for me during COVID, like just having to still show up for work, run a business and look after my kids and my my home all at the same time.
5: Mm-hmm. Our staff was low on shovels. So I was like, hey, I'll go buy shovels. I go, I'll go sharpen them. At the same time, I have to take all the garbage. All these different tasks that we don't have to do them all, but I find women always want to.
3: Building on that, there's there's a couple of things that I'm learning because I think my tendency is definitely to say yes to many tasks and to like notice what it is that needs to be done. So sort of having that awareness of like the low on shovels, okay, someone needs to go do that, or other types of of work that way. And I think we are perhaps not socialized to accept support in the same way that men kind of often assume that the support will be present. And I'll just give an example. So I've been overwhelmed with uh, media requests recently. The first day that I did that, I was just like trying to schedule all these interviews and respond to all the emails and then do all the interviews at the same time. And it was just like, I can't possibly do all these things. And so I really had to. I have a couple of research assistants working for me who are working for the Institute. And I was like, I need your help. I need you to help me schedule this. I need you to respond to the emails. And I had never asked that sort of task of my students because I felt like, well, I can do it. And I don't want them to feel like my time is so valuable that I can't manage to do these sorts of things or that I'm somehow delegating these in a way that's inappropriate. But it has made a world of difference for me. And they're so happy to be part of the team to help, to support, because they can't do that particular type of work. So I think it's partly also learning to accept support and learning to delegate without feeling that that's somehow a bad thing. And that's something I'm still learning.
0: Those are really good examples. And I was, I was reflecting because when Steph, who I think you're chatting about, mm-hmm. Stephanie, is at Holmhofer Helmhofer, yeah. Helmhofer. She's my um, graduate, graduate student. She's awesome. Yeah, shout out Steph, and also a great um, media presence for public archeology span and public education. So when she had reached out, um, I was like delighted and I was like, God, I need a person to help me with my schedule and I I recognized immediately that that is hard to ask for help, right? And I was like, wow, what would a world look like where we're asking for help?
4: Early in my career, I was much younger than the rest of the faculty that I joined and so everything seemed to fall to me because they had already held all of the positions and didn't want to do it again. And and I was female and all of that kind of stuff. And so I made this decision in my head that I would try and do absolutely everything and have it all out of the way before I was 50. And that after 50, I was just gonna concentrate on all the things that bring me joy in archeology. span But I got so busy doing everything that I made the realization that in my applications for research funding, I could ask for a coordinator for my projects. And then I had somebody to help me that could do the kinds of tasks that Keisha was suggesting. Amazing. And my whole life changed, even in the midst of all of this administrative prep that I was going through. Just being able to have people there to support you is an amazing thing. And they really do feel like they're part of the team. And it is a way that you can mentor your students.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Lisa, I'm curious about that. Why 50? What was What was it about 50
0: for that, being 50?
4: There was one woman in my department when I arrived who was a senior archaeologist, Priscilla Renouf. And the advice that she gave me when I started was make a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, and a 20-year plan and also remember, we're all going to retire soon. So one day this is all going to be yours and you're going to have to figure out what to do with it. Okay. <laughs> and so I had these various staged plans. They didn't always work because nothing always works how you plan it to be. But I thought by 50, I should be a senior archaeologist who is a professor and I should just be, you know, spent often in faculties, you spend your whole life doing research and then you do the administrative stuff at the end. I wanted to get it out of the way. I wanted to be able to get to a point where I had nothing else to focus on except the parts of archaeology that brought me joy. I think that if I had focused on research really early on, I would still have been brought into all of those things because I was the young woman in the department anyway. Right. So you would do it differently, you feel? like I think I made the exact right decision oh, to, yeah. to do okay. what I did. What I hadn't expected along that process, I guess, was that I started asking for help and from my graduate students largely because I was just too busy. Without even realizing it, I had this great community around me that were almost all women and we were all working as a team. I mean, Amelia was part of that. And it was a a really fun, exciting time for me to finally figure out that I could build a team and have all kinds of supports and I didn't have to do everything myself.
2: Yeah. And team Rankin's pretty awesome. Team Rankin. <laughs> I want a team Rankin t-shirt.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Lisa, I'm going to take something that you just said, and I'm going to leverage it to talk about something that's on my mind. And it's this limiting idea of should. And so we talk about, I I heard you say it, you know, I felt like at the age of 50, I should be a whatever it is. And I find that looking back on my career, I had so many expectations surrounding should, and I'm not sure if they existed, if they would have existed, if I was in another field, I suspect yes, but I, you know, can't live two lives. So I'm not sure, but it seemed like there was so many shoulds that in a way drove me and I benefited ultimately from them, but I felt like there was this like relentless whipping of myself, you know, to, to achieve certain things that I felt I should be doing. And I, I know we touched on that a little bit at the CAA session, but it just resonated with me again. Cause I heard should, and I'm exploiting you bringing that word.
4: in. <laughs> I, th- I think you're right, Jenny. There are lots of ways to think about what you want from a career. And I think when you're young, there's a lot of shoulds. I should do this, I should do that. And the older that you get, you probably look back on them and think, why were you even concentrating on some of those shoulds? Life happens much more organically than that. And as women, we we don't often embrace life outside of our careers when in archaeology, frankly.
3: That's true. Yeah, I think this is a really important question because I think we need to switch from what you should due to what you actually want. And as someone who trains archaeologists in part, right, going through undergraduate and graduate work, you know, I'm I'm always sitting down with my students and saying, what is it that you imagine your career to be, right? Like, so I'm not trying to say you're getting a PhD, you should do the following, which is usually try to get an academic job when there aren't any, but more so saying like, what is it that, you know, what is it that you like about this work what is it that draws you what is it, where is that passion and then what could you possibly do with that as opposed to this sense of should be be doing things and it's part of the way we enforce the disciplinary boundaries and the barriers right so there's a lot of talk i think right now around ableism in archaeology which is another conversation to have But this idea that to be an archaeologist, you should do particular types of field work and that you're not a legitimate archaeologist unless you have done said things, it becomes gatekeeping. It becomes a way to keep particular types of people out of the discipline as well. So even though we sort of internalize the should, those shoulds are often externally uh, generated because we see what other people are doing or we get told there's certain ways in which we should be being archaeologists. So I think it's really important to to step back and really examine that should
2: I'm glad you brought that up Keisha actually because you know as a museum curator who doesn't really have a lot of uh opportunities to do fieldwork anymore I sometimes have these these feelings like oh like can I still call myself an archaeologist oh, just yeah. because that that fieldwork you know narrative really dominates so yeah I just I'm glad you brought that up because that's kind of something that I've grappled with a little bit more recently about how the work that I do through the museum context is still legitimate archaeological work. It's just through a different avenue.
4: Never a few years ago, maybe about five or six years ago, I, I had been in the field every year since I was about I don't know, 16 or 17, I guess. And I was starting not to love it anymore. And my students could see that. And I remember one of my students who had worked with me for a long time and was kind of really my right-hand person, um, saying to me, you know, I can I can handle a lot of this. Why don't you start taking a bit of a holiday in the summer? Maybe leave a couple of weeks before we do. And I started doing that and it was just the, the best thing. But if she hadn't pointed that out, I might have still been in that I should be doing this fieldwork situation each
0: summer. I have found myself in that experience too, Lisa, where I have almost been like waiting for permission to like be released from something. And I find that in my partnership with Amanda with Cleanza, I was really stressed out uh, these past few months and I was chatting with Amanda about it and she had brought up the suggestion. She's like, why don't you just take like a sabbatical? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I didn't realize I was, I was actually literally crying for someone to say that to me like literally crying and i and i didn't realize it and I, it, there was like no universe where i was going to do it for myself you know i'm 41 years old i'm i'm not 20 right and and i should be able to do that for myself and i still find that limiting factor which was such a hard thing to recognize about myself
1: yeah sometimes it's important to just take a break and recharge and let other people competent people in your organization take over And everyone's competent. You have a great team and the company's not going to fall apart if you take a couple of weeks off.
3: And I think Amanda, what you were saying comes back to something Lisa brought up. And I think this might help for other women in particular who are in these types of roles, which is, there's also part of it is, is giving our colleagues the chance to take on these responsibilities and to learn and be mentored. So I think about that in terms of graduate students and, and how, you know, it's actually as part of their training to be able to run things, to coordinate research and whether they're, they end up in a CRM context or in a museum context or in government or in academia, they need to, to know how to run projects. It's partly also recognizing that we actually need to give people the chance to step up and do that mm-hmm. as responsible leaders.
0: Yeah. And give them permission to make those mistakes. Mm-hmm right so to be teaching trust as well but i don't know that we're we're taught that otherwise like it, it wasn't part of my story of coming into archaeology and one thing I am curious is to kind of back up a little bit. And we've been talking about kind of, you know, the the power of should for starting out in career. We've been talking about how, you know, there maybe isn't like heart based decision making happening early in careers and how that has to be taught because it, it's not necessarily inherent within this framework of career archaeology. But what I, I'd love to do is kind of step back a little bit. And, you know, we have an age span here of our, we have women in their thirties up to, I think their fifties in this group was pretty broad, but we all experienced the Indiana Jones effect (laughs) growing up. And there was a great article that just came out in Smithsonian Mag by Christina Kilgrove. And she talks about the enduring myths of Raiders of the Lost Ark and how, you know, Myth number one is that rugged, swashbuckling, fedora-wearing Indiana Jones is what most archaeologists are like. Now, we all kind of came up in that Indiana Jones timeframe, I would offer. And wh- with that in mind, why archaeology in the first place?
2: For me, it was, you know, when I went into my undergrad, you know, you're supposed to dabble in a bunch of different disciplines before you set your major or whatever. But anthropology was really intriguing to me. But then archaeology, just because I love being outside. And so the appeal to me was the fact that like I could do a job where I get to be outside and do something really cool that I love and find interesting. So for me, it was something really simple, just the the draw of being able to connect with nature outside um, and have that as part of my job.
3: I was originally drawn to archaeology in my teens. And so I actually went to university with the intention of studying ancient civilizations in in the Middle East. And what drew me, I think, was that it was definitely a sense of adventure. So I don't know if I necessarily thought that I would live a life like Indiana Jones, but I certainly think that the kind of vision of exotic places, so places that I could travel to, but also this idea of exploring, right? So exploring the, the things that were not known or, or uncovering uh, truths and we we sort of see that playing out in other popular applications of pseudo-archaeology in particular um, but for me it was definitely a draw this sense of kind of going and finding things that other people didn't know and telling stories of of the past I think was
5: always interesting to me. I find this really interesting because um I grew up quite differently. Archaeology was a second career for me, or maybe like a third or fourth career. I accidentally took a field school as I was graduating from my economics degree, and I didn't return to study archaeology until a few years later. I had these opposite pressures of you should be a doctor, you should be a lawyer, you should get your MBA, you should buy a house, you should buy a car, all that kind of stuff. And I was just like, I should be happy. So I'm going to go do all these things that keep me broke. And then when I discovered archaeology, I just really loved finding things. And then as I got older and I got a job, I'm like, I can't afford to do anything. So I guess I should get a good job and I guess I should do well at that job. And it's just kind of proceeded from there. But I still love finding things.
4: Yeah, mine is probably quite different than everybody else's. Like Keisha, I started I was interested in archaeology before I went to university. I started volunteering on projects as a young teenager. I had a very small family. Uh, my mom passed when I was quite young and my brother, who was 10 years older than me, had actually left the country by the time I was a teenager. So there was just me and my dad and I was quite lonely and I was interested in archaeology. And when I got involved in it, I really kind of found a second family. I I really loved the camaraderie of fieldwork, you know, living at sites and so I was interested in that, very, very interested in the history that we were uncovering and talking about, but I was equally interested in the friendship dynamics that developed out of being a young, lonely kid. You know, the camaraderie thing is one of the things that has causing a lot of problems for young women entering the field now, right? I often think back on that and think, why in, in my young career when I was a teenager did I have such a... A wonderful accepting time on archaeological sites where these sites are, you know, they're they're often a lot of bad experiences take place for young women on these sites today.
3: Yes, I think that's a good point around the nature, especially of field work, has certainly become something that has been talked about a lot in terms of how it does open up for those boundaries to be crossed. And I too love the fact that you really can't do archaeology alone, that it is a group activity. But at the same time, if there are people who violate those boundaries, it is easy for that space to become unsafe. You know, So I think it really depends on who's there and Particularly, who's in charge in a certain way? Who's uh, kind of setting um, standards for that particular interaction? And there are lots of good stories. I mean, I've generally had very positive field experiences myself, w- with a few exceptions. But at the same time, there are places where those boundaries are are easily crossed in really problematic ways that tie back to some of the kind of archaeological culture that, in some ways, goes back to this, that same image of the Indiana Jones out there, right? And and I know there's been conversations around, for example, uh, the drinking culture, and how, you know, that can definitely add to uh, the lack of, of safety for especially folks who are more, more junior. So I think so much depends on who's creating the space, how people are conducting themselves, setting accountability and expectations for how, you know, how those boundaries are upheld, even when you are, connected
1: with each other as you inevitably are in the field. I guess I just would have assumed that things have changed and think that things are getting better for in terms of like safe spaces and and safety in general, compared to maybe how it was back in the seventies.
3: I think it's improved, but I think recent research has suggested that it's not as much better as we might hope. So I was involved with the group that did, The survey of negative experiences of Canadian archaeologists were working with Lisa Hodgetts through the Canadian Archaeological Association, and I think we were, I mean, we had a lot of younger colleagues who responded, and there didn't seem to be a huge improvement that there was still people who really faced you know, some really horrific things in the field. There's the kind of daily microaggressions and pieces which are harmful, but then there's, you know, sexual assault and sexual violence. And we still see that younger folks experiencing that in the field and not just in the field, but also in other contexts. Um, so in, in university contexts, et cetera. I was a bit surprised, I would say, at the fact that this was still quite prevalent even among the younger age group. Yeah, it is surprising to hear that. I'd really like
0: to, you know, I feel like sometimes when we talk, not we like people here but when folks talk about experiences in archaeology and negative experience in archaeology and women's negative experiences in archaeology i feel like we're um inadvertently perhaps even part of the problem i feel like there's still euphemisms being used while talking about it like it was and i, I do it myself it was difficult it was lonely people were doing things they shouldn't have been doing um and of course lisa just gave some great examples of really positive positive experiences but i think Think it's also really important like what are those negative experiences that people are, are I, I don't mean names or anything like that of course but what are some of the realities that colleagues have and are facing in archaeology
5: i just think back to my original field school and like keisha mentioned the the drinking culture and it's still very much um alive you know, like for the CIAs, I'm like, let's plan parties. That's the whole reason why I wanted to help plan the CIAs. There's still a big drinking culture. Um, People feel pressured that they have to drink. um, And then it goes a little overboard and people release and like every field school and like group type project I've been on, there's just like people hitting on each other and affairs. It's a little crazy. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I remember one of my first experiences working in the field was in Belize. The stuff that I witnessed there, I had to, the language that I used to describe the situation there changed as I grew more confident and got older. So I remember talking to people after my time in Belize and being like, oh, you know, it was, it was really different, like it was kind of a different dynamic. And then uh, there was a bit of machismo and... And then kind of advancing to, uh, yeah, it seemed like some people were taken advantage of. And then, you know, a couple of years later, I'd be like, yeah, there was definitely date rape that happened. And then now I'm like, that was 100 percent sexual assault that I saw happening in the field where we found out later there was, it was almost like a culture of young women being brought to this field school and being literally and figuratively cut off from support networks. And it it was almost like a predator and prey situation, like just to lay it completely out there. And, And then what was worse was when it was brought to the attention of the director, it was like, oh, you're overreacting. And I was like, I don't think I am.
3: But that was kind of the end of the conversation. You know, one of the things that we certainly saw within the survey data was when women, especially, faced sexual harassment or sexual assault. um, That we we looked at other forms of, you know, negative experiences like physical violence, exploitation, discrimination, uh, et cetera. But in these particular ones around sexual harassment, sexual assault, uh, they barely ever reported what happened. And when they did report, very few were ever satisfied with the outcomes. So many stories about, you know, this the thing that happened, and sometimes it ranges from, you know, really inappropriate comments all the way to rape. And, you know, in all those cases, many times it was like, oh, that's not actually what happened. That's not actually, you know, oh, wasn't that bad, you're overreacting. And that classic gaslighting it's it's the woman's fault you shouldn't have been drinking or you know you shouldn't have been doing this you maybe should have covered up your body more and the onus always goes on to the the survivor right the person who to whom it, it happened and one of the things we really tried to report on in some of the papers that we've written is that the vast majority of perpetrators in every category were men so can we shift the lens toward whose actually doing this to people as opposed to putting the onus on people who survive these types of um,
0: actions. And and that's a conversation. Obviously, you know, talking about sexual assault, the way you just characterize certain elements of it. There, the re- the responses that you got in that study, they're not particular to archaeology, right? Like, so it's very it's very common, just in in terms of getting uh, results from police stations, for example, of cases and rape in a community where there's the same characteristics. If you take the archaeology out of it, but why is it that in archaeology, kind of everyone seems to know of a situation like this happening? or two degrees removed from it or something like this. And I, I, I just, I'm just, I'm trying to wrap my head around why it's it's part of the narrative still surrounding archaeology. I, I don't know of other disciplines. They could certainly exist. Maybe
2: they do where this is, uh, you know, part of the narrative. I get the sense that it's it's largely field-based disciplines. So just from yeah. even sort of following along on Twitter, like, a lot of biologists uh, have similar discussions too about like being a woman doing biological field work or geologists as well. So it's something to do with the nature of of doing field work, um, being removed, I guess, from as you had said your your connections and your contacts and your support. I guess leaves people more vulnerable, and then makes other people aware of that vulnerability and then they they capitalize on it perhaps. And I'm not really sure, but I do get the sense that it's not necessarily unique to archeology, span but perhaps broader to field-based disciplines.
3: And it is that flip side of what Lisa brought up earlier around the camaraderie, around like there's an intimacy to doing field work, to living with people that you don't often have in other disciplines or careers even. And, you know, if you think about like my colleagues who study history, they don't go out with other groups of people and live together for months at a time, often in areas that you aren't connected to um, a normal kind of rhythm of, of life. It's very sort of insulated in a certain way. And I think that does just create the need for really clear and strong boundaries and codes of conduct and ultimately accountability structures. And that's where I see a huge issue. And why does it exist? Why do we all know a story? In part because the person in charge was either perpetuating that, like doing it themselves, or they were not holding accountable the members of their team who were doing these things. And the system itself wasn't built to hold them to account, right? So I think the accountability
1: is is a piece that really is missing in in many contexts. Is that changing now, Keisha? Do you think, like in university settings with field schools, for example, like are there is are there tighter rules around setting boundaries? I think it is changing. I think it's changing in part because a lot of
3: us who run field schools recognize the importance of spelling out something like a code of conduct. I actually work on more of a principles of community basis in my own work where we actually come together as a group and we talk about these things right up front. We talk about the way that archeology span can sometimes lead to the blurring of boundaries or these sort of intimacies that might not otherwise happen in a classroom setting. And then we collectively agree on how we want to, to move forward together, what are our core values. But many folks are adopting codes of conduct and organizations are starting to require them more and I hope that will lead to better outcomes, um, but it's still largely up to the person in charge. And one thing I will say about being an academic is there's very few systems to hold academics accountable for bad behavior because of the systems of tenure and academic freedom are often invoked. And uh, we hear this for, for folks who might be predators who are academics, it's difficult to hold academics to account. And obviously I'm not the only people involved in this, but a lot of field schools are run by academics. And so that's another layer of challenge here.
4: I've never actually run a field school, but I do bring uh, students from the university, usually my graduate students, maybe a couple of undergraduate students into the field with me to quite remote settings almost every summer. And I don't, I have been thinking about a code of conduct. I haven't uh, done one yet, but we do have a discussion about what is expected and behavior and and such. But I mean, mostly I just consider it such a privilege to be able to spend that kind of time, particularly with my graduate students, in such an intimate setting because the guards fall down. Students, I think, feel comfortable to ask me questions about the discipline and what they're trying to do for their research that they would never ask me in in an office or classroom setting because they've learned a little bit more about me. And it's such a wonderful opportunity to create a really great experience in archeology span and to introduce students to a really collegial way of doing research. Now I do community-based research to begin with, so the collegiality sort of underlies everything that we do. I'm always very saddened when I hear that people have had hard experiences with field schools and with field work, because I just love it so much. And I think there are so many good ways to do it.
1: It sounds like you're doing a good job, Lisa, of setting a better standard. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and that's the
0: thing I was saying about a few bad apples, right? I'm thinking again to the field school in Belize. It certainly was not rampant sexual assault. It's not like everybody was going around in some frenzy that wasn't it the damaging effects of you know a couple individuals in power positions had these lasting effects for a lot of the students that were there in like a very very real sense and i'm i'm just wondering like as we talk about these things how do we talk to early career archaeologists you know female students in archaeology so that they're kind of aware of the realities of these situations, but still, you know, still feel
5: comfortable to go into the field. I think it's important just to continue to have these discussions and to have them more often. Because one thing, another thing I noticed from the panel that we did was that confidence is still a huge issue for female archaeologists and women in general. And oftentimes women don't want to speak up if they have Um, gone through a negative experience because they're scared they'll lose their job. They're scared they won't get selected for this or that. They're they're scared they'll be judged, all that kind of stuff. So when a panel of women like you guys come together and talk about how you have to use your voice and, you know, the the consequences of of whatever you've gone through, like, don't even worry about it. It's more important that you speak up. And I think the the more we do this, the more confidence women will have to do so. Yeah. And I also think having... The conversations, Margarita, as you know, are so
3: important. And also ensuring, you know, like Lisa, the kind of environment you created sounds amazing in the field. And I really strive to do the same myself. But not all of my archaeology colleagues across Canada do that. And I know they don't because I hear what students say. And so, both demonstrating that that is possible, but also that they should, you know, so not to sort of be like, well, things could go really badly, but to say, this is what you should expect. It should be a very positive and safe environment, right? So like sort of modeling what that can look like, so that people don't feel like it's it's somehow about their, like, their fault, right? Because I think that's one of the things women can often take on, is like, well, what did I do? You know, what, what kind of happened there? So kind of having these really good examples and then saying, this is what you should expect from a field school or from a field experience. And, uh, and if you go in and they don't have a clear discussion about this, that should maybe be a red flag, right? So trying to equip them with some sense of you know, how, to, how to navigate through that, because not all of our colleagues create that positive and safe environment for students or junior folks in the field. I
0: think that also ties back to something Keisha. I think it was, I'm pretty certain it was you, uh, spoke about in the panel. And I think it had come from a, a question from a student who was talking about creating and holding space for, I think it was queer students. I can't remember, I can't remember the exact question. And you, I believe it was you, had said, you know, signaling safe spaces. So yes. like signaling inclusivity and, you know, listening and learning, but also being like I'm open to talk about this. I'm, you know, I'm showing my pronouns. I'm, I'm signaling that this is a conversation I can have. Yeah. And I think that that's part of it too, is modeling that. And I was going to uh, give the, the example really quickly of how thank goodness we haven't had a situation with uh, a staff member coming to us uh, about, let's say a sexual assault. What I think we try and do is cultivate and exhibit a zero tolerance for shitty behavior, like across the board. And so I've been in many meetings with clients where they are abusive in their language of our staff. And I have just like stepped in and and shut it down. And so I hope it never goes more than that. But I think even that kind of exhibition of zero tolerance can be as powerful as signaling what you were saying, Keisha, about being a space where these things can be talked about
3: you know, we're here as a panel of of women in archaeology. But there's, of course, the intersectional pieces to this as well. And so, you know, as an indigenous woman, the ways in which my indigeneity and my, my being my gender identity kind of intersect, uh, can mean that my experience of spaces is, is different. I mean, I'm white coded, So that makes me navigating through these spaces more, more easy in some, in some cases. But again, I think that, you know, Doing things like talking about my pronouns, talking about you know accessibility and accommodation, talking about the fact that you know we're going to be out engaging, say, with indigenous community members, and we need to be careful about you know we need to be conscious of our own language and constantly reflexive around that, and also just show our own willingness to be like, oh, I screwed that up, and it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm still learning about this, so I've been really working on ableism as I mentioned earlier, and like I still catch myself using really ableist language or making assumptions about people's physical capacity. And I'm really working on that because I recognize that that's a way to, again, create a barrier that we might not even think about. And also knowing that people may come into this space from a different background where that kind of intimacy with a professor is really uncomfortable for them, right? So coming from a, a tradition where there's different boundaries between folks who are more senior, folks who are in more positions of that require respect, that there are some cultural traditions where blurring those boundaries is really hard. And so we also need to respect the fact that we're going to, if we want a diverse archaeology, we need to be attentive to many of these different things as we navigate through creating these spaces. So uh, Keisha had brought up the power of recognizing fault.
0: Um, I goof all the time it's my it's my calling card Not you jenny um, i know 100% i'm constantly making mistakes um and i i had to like early on learn to just own those apologies um which was a huge learning experience for me but again it's another way of signaling from a leadership position that we, we are we are building this as we go And it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to say, oh, well, shit, you know, what I thought was okay to do five years ago is simply not acceptable now. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I'm
1: not doing it again. What, like putting whiskey in our survival kits (laughs) as an example, whiskey and cigarettes? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in
0: part, although I'm not sure that that's a bad idea, I still maintain there's a time and a place if you're stuck on a mountain, but uh, I didn't know (laughs) if anyone, if any other participants wanted to...
5: had a a point they wanted to build upon there. I think I just want to put some whiskey into our survival kit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's a great, not so great
0: idea. (laughs) It's a great idea. Yeah, it sounds like a great one in the planning session. In in practice,
4: it was the first thing to go missing. I would say that I make all kinds of mistakes as well. And one of the really important things is to not just own those mistakes, but to also forgive yourself for them at some point. Because I know that one of the things that, I think a lot of women experiences that late night anxiety about the fact that you did something wrong 10 years ago that you just can't get over. Mm.
0: 10 years ago, 10 minutes ago. Um, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I spend a, a tremendous amount of time beating myself up over things that happened that I had no control over.
4: Yeah. I think that's part of the confidence discussion that we were having last time too that uh, I think men forgive themselves for things much more easy. I'm not even sure that they think about it after they've, you know, apologized or the event is over or whatever it is, but it certainly stays with me for a very long time.
2: Yeah, that was actually part of the the original panel at the CAs that really stuck with me too was, you know, the talk of confidence and the talk of um, kind of how we how we uh, navigate things and then how we dwell on them when things don't go according to plan. And what I really took away from that too, was I, I got the sense particularly from, from Lisa and Holly was that, you know, they're at the stage of their career where they've given themselves, like they've, they've gotten over some of those hurdles. And, you know, at least you say, you know, given your chance to forgive yourself. And I'm still in the thick of it, grappling with agonizing over every, tiny little mistake and um not forgiving myself for all these tiny little mistakes. So it's it's something I'm still actively really working on. And I don't really have any advice on how to how to move beyond that.
0: Damn it. I was gonna ask you, do you have any advice <laughs> for how to move
2: beyond that? I don't. I'm stuck in it. So if you do, let me know. I I
0: Positive affirmations. I, mean, I have no idea. I, 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 I really have no idea. I still feel like this is one of the frontiers of archaeology. Is this gender divide that is happening? I still, I still think it's very m- much there.
1: When I think about all the mistakes I've made over my career and and just in my life, I think that mistakes you can you can really beat yourself up about them, or you can look at them as learning experiences. So every mistake that you've made, you've learned something from it. And so it's just important to reflect and and recognize maybe what that learning experience was and try not to make the same mistake twice.
5: Yeah, I I would absolutely agree with that. I think as leaders, like for us, uh, Amanda and Jenny, as business owners, right? Like the buck stops here. I think it's important A, for people to see that we have made mistakes so that it's okay that they make mistakes as well to show them what we can learn from it really just allows them to move on because like when people do stuff to the trucks or something like that, they're just so scared that they're going to lose their job or that I'm going to yell at them, even though they've probably never, ever heard me yell. It allows them to move forward and, and be confident to make decisions moving forward, knowing that it's okay to make a mistake and then learn from it.
0: Yeah, I think also, I have tremendous hope for the young people, like we're not the young people anymore. Sorry, everyone, I'm here to tell you, we are not the young people anymore, (laughs) which I've had to come to terms with. But I have this painting in my office um, by an Etsy artist named Gracie Lee Art, and she has this picture of, and it it says the young people will win. And I actually love that because I have such tremendous hope for young people. And when we did the panel, the questions that we were getting, I was like, oh my God, like I never even, these would never have occurred to me coming up in my career at all. They just they just wouldn't for it. They wouldn't have come up at all. And I just wonder, like, what does the discipline hold moving forward? I hope it's drastic. We, we talk about, you know, archaeology. Um, it, it's at a it's at a decision point. It's at a, a major juncture right now, and we, you know, we're we're working through the terms of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. We're working through the terms of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's call to action. We are working through a, an economy that's going to be post COVID, and I just wonder how we can go back to how things were before all of those things. It, it, I mean archaeologies just shouldn't look the same for those reasons alone. And all of those things, uh, economy, indigenous rights, human rights, embedded within them, they have equity at their core and inequity. And I think that that's the heart of what we're talking about. And so I wonder with all of that in mind, like how does the discipline look different? 10 years from now? Does anyone have any predictions or any anything that they would tell young women and young men uh, coming up in the discipline, like what their future might hold and how they might take some ownership in that now?
5: I think one key word that I've been hearing a lot in the last year is boundaries. And I see myself in the last year recognizing boundaries and being true to my boundaries. For example, if a client says, um, you can only take one Indigenous participant with you, I can say, well, no, this many bands want to participate, so we have to do it. Um, The ability to say no, I think, is increasing, and I think that is really important in all senses, of it like not just about being a woman but you know working ethically ethically and, and indigenous inclusion and all that kind of stuff and I think the younger people are much better at those boundaries I'm recognizing that in my staff they're much better at speaking up and saying actually I have too much work or actually I, I can't do that so I, I would be excited to see a world where people
2: are very true to their boundaries and hold people accountable and that it's okay. I also think that young people right now, like they're, you know, emerging into adulthood at a really crazy time. But like, I think sort of activism is going to be a huge part of uh, archaeological practice. Like, I think people are going to be a lot less afraid of making some bold changes and taking some risks and doing things completely differently and turning things upside down. I think that, you know, this upcoming generation is is going to be pretty fearless. I think it's pretty exciting. Some of the stuff that's constrained, uh, like my generation, is sort of this trying to fit a mold and work within that mold and gradually change it. And I think that they don't have those same thoughts or constrictions. And of course, I'm not young, so I'm just basing this on what I've seen of the of the younger people, which I also had a mega existential crisis when margarita sent out those questions before the panel and (laughs) i emailed lisa actually and i was like wait a minute am i old now like oh my god (laughs) God. we're old we are (laughs) but you're asking me about my early career Uh, thank you i feel (laughs) we have lessons to impart i know it's it's a little crazy (laughs) that i have lessons to impart but i do i have a lot of hope for what's coming after us and I think if we can foster that and, and encourage it, I think we're gonna see some great changes.
4: Yeah, I have a, a lot of hope as well. The young undergraduates that come through our program now are, oh, they're, they're so much more aware of equality and inclusivity. And Amy's absolutely right, activism is a is a huge part of the way that they see the world and participate in it. And, you know, we teach differently. We do different kinds of archaeology um, that they're getting exposed to very, very early. And I think this is in part by having a lot more women in the discipline. Nobody taught me how to do community archaeology. It wasn't even recognized as part of archaeology when I started doing it. And now it's a standard part of how we do archaeological work. Things that I see my MA and PhD students Undertaking working with communities are far more than I could ever have dreamed of because they've been thinking about these concepts since their undergrads, um, so they're way more advanced at and much better at it than I am. So I'm really optimistic too. So I think we just uphold each other. We move our teaching, our fieldwork forward in a more responsive and equal way, and I think that things will get better. And I'm really optimistic for the future. Actually. So we've been
0: talking about this idea of ethical archaeology. It's come up a few times, and it's kind of a, a nebulous phrase that we bandy bandy about. And I mean, obviously, we wanted our discipline to improve. We want our personal practice to improve, and I, and I think we want to have a positive legacy, right? In archaeology, we're always thinking about the long durée and and how things impact other things. And so I wondered. For each of you, what is uh, ethical archaeology like? What does it what does it mean for you when you when you reference that? What does it look like for you?
1: I'll go first. For me, anyway, I mean, there's a lot of aspects to doing ethical archaeology, and in our tagline, we call it doing archaeology for good. For me, it's doing what a lot of what Lisa talked about: community-based archaeology and doing work with communities and that and directly engaging with the descendant people for those communities.
2: I think following up on that, like I often uh, repeat the mantra that I've heard from a lot of um, Indigenous scholars, just because I largely work on Indigenous Canadian topics, um, but that it's not about us without us, right? And so Mm -hmm. constantly putting that forward, like, okay, I'm a white settler, And I'm studying the fur trade, which is a completely culturally dynamic period of time here in in what we now call Canada. And so I really need to frame it with that. It's not about us without us and bring in the relevant community members, elders, youth um, to kind of help frame the questions we're going to ask and the approach we're going to take. And so that's sort of the way I I look at ethical archaeology.
4: For me, I'd say it's along the same lines. Um, certainly, it's about bringing more equality and diversity into archaeology, creating a discipline where everybody feels that they can contribute and they have a space in and that they they aren't shunned from participating in, whether that's ableism or gender related. Uh, I think that. A more open discipline would be great, but I also think that the kinds of work that we undertake really have to be guided by community-based kinds of knowledges and, and uh, ways of doing things these days. And In my own work, I have only done... Uh, research that has been requested of me now for almost 15 years by Indigenous communities. I don't set out an agenda. They do, and I help them figure out ways to meet the goals that they have in mind. And I think that, you know, doing archaeology for good, if it's done right, that's the best way to do archaeology. And I actually no longer see much point in doing any other kind of archaeology.
1: And there's always
4: room to do better. There's always room for improvement always. And I again, I continually make mistakes. Elders tell me all the time that I'm misunderstanding things. Um, <laughs> but that's that's part of that, that dialogue and learning how to do it better.
5: Um, it's interesting for me because I'm basically a European-trained archaeologist, so there is no Indigenous participation over there. And then now I work in Alberta, and the requirements are much more limited here. Um, we don't have a lot of indigenous inclusion. Um, both at the company I used to work at and at circle, just because it hasn't been asked for us. So when I think about ethical archaeology, I think about the technical aspect of archaeology, archaeology as a science where we're we're going out and we record what we see. Um, you know, we're we're trying to find that balance between recording archaeology and helping advance development. But we if we find a site, we properly delineate it, we're we're doing enough shovel tests. We're doing adequate mitigation. We're recording the story well and properly, so that if that site is impacted, then it's properly recorded and all that. Um, and if it's so important, then it shouldn't be impacted at all. So really doing justice to the archaeology, and then of course disseminating that knowledge publicly, um, not just for the communities, but just for everyone to understand and appreciate archaeology. And it's really only recently that we're trying to figure out a way to have indigenous inclusion because as a consulting archeologist in Alberta who mainly does forestry and then oil and gas, there just is not a lot of opportunity or, or ask for indigenous inclusion. So how do we do that and do it properly?
0: And I would just build upon, I agree with everything that everyone has said and I find myself considering ways to make, archaeology better a more ethical approach by decentering my perspectives so that's definitely what we've just talked about in terms of indigenous perspectives but it for me I also consider it just not doing archaeology for archaeologists in general I think that's the old way of doing things and mm-hmm. it, it needs to be disrupted and it's not just um, indigenous communities so that is a critical, critical piece. But it's also, um, you know, other people care about heritage and archaeology who aren't archaeologists. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how do mm-hmm. they have a voice and, you know, they're non-expert users and and how are they represented? What does their idea of heritage look like and talking to them and having perhaps unexpected collaborations? And the one that come, comes to mind because i uh, just finished writing a paper, which being published in a volume early next year. So stay tuned for that, which is um, uh, for collector archaeologist collaborations and what can be learned by that by destigmatizing these non-traditional collaborations that are happening throughout archaeology, whether we recognize it or not. And so by decentering my perspective and what I think archaeology should, air quotes, very useful for podcasts, should um, look like or not look like, it just it, it makes the it makes the potential and the power and the meaning behind archaeology so much bigger, so much more potent. And so that that for me is a big part of having an ethical practice as well as taking my needs and wants out of it as much as possible. Well said, Jenny.
5: I have a question for all of you. Yeah. Okay. Where do you get your favorite field pants? That's a question of, of, among a bunch of our women here.
0: Oh, you know, I'll tell you the truth. For years, I wore um, a pair of Dickies, men's Dickies. I still wear them. thirty-two thirty, or th- sorry, thirty-two thirty-two. It's the smallest size you can get in them. And they were like the ultimate field pants because they wouldn't dig into your waist and you could hike the straps up. So then they didn't have that like droopy men's pants crotch. That happens. They're hard to. They're hard to pee in, though. They're super. Uh, that's one hundred percent the downside, definitely. And the other great pair of field pants I had was a, a pair of super stretchy, thick fleece pants from Costco.
1: My current favorite is the Carhartt jeggings that were or leggings, I guess. Yeah, they're super stretchy, super comfortable. You can get them at Marks and. They have pockets all over them. They're awesome.
0: And they've got a nice thick waistband. Although mine did like fall
1: apart fairly quickly, I will say. Mine didn't. But maybe you used yours more than mine. I'm tough on equipment. There's no doubt. It's a great question though. Yeah. And even if our listeners out there have any suggestions, they can email them to us. Let us know what the ultimate field pants are.
0: And also, if anyone's listening and wants to talk about their own experiences as a woman in archaeology or an ally of women in archaeology, we'd love to hear about you because part of the conversation about coming to terms with all this is getting it all out in the open and destigmatizing this as a topic. And so we'd love to hear from folks. Anyway, I think we'll we'll wrap it up there. I want to thank Keisha, Amelia, Lisa, Marg, and Holly in spirit. She couldn't make it here today. And thank everyone so much for continuing this discussion. Again, I feel like we're just scratching the tip of the iceberg. And
1: I, I'd love to keep this going. Yeah, thanks. Thanks to all of our guests. Really appreciate you coming here today and spending this time with us.
5: Thanks for having us and for being such great hosts. Thank
3: you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed being a part of the conversation.
2: Yeah, thanks Thanks for having us. And uh, it was such a relaxing, I was really nervous before, but now I'm like, no, this was super chill. So this was a really good podcast experience.
4: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, thanks very much, Jenny and Amanda. Really appreciate it. We appreciate you. Thanks, you, guys. Thank
1: you, Lisa. And it was so good to see you and hear your voice after all these years. I know, I think it was 1998, Amanda. Yeah, you're probably right. Well, thanks everyone. Hey
0: folks, thanks for listening to this episode of Dig This. If you have any questions or there is something you'd like us to dig into, reach out online.
1: You can find and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dig This Pod. If you dig us, leave us a review and tune in next week for a new episode.